Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, June 16th, 2017. All right, let's see here. <laughs> My program notes are like all over the place today. Hang on, I wrote some of them down. <laughs> you ever have one of those weeks you just totally, totally just discombobulated? Anyway, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to. Yeah, whose books apparently we need to be buying and whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Weird how that works, isn't it? And over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, yeah, that's teaching, doctrine that is being given to uh, evangelicals to consume is, like, not even biblical. It's not what God's Word says. It's not what we're called to believe. And pretty much it is just uh, doctrinal anarchy out there. I mean, total rebellion and anarchy. And uh, people don't have time for God's Word. They will not listen to it. If you bring them the the Word of the Lord from the Scriptures and rightly handle it, chances are you're going to get yourself fired. Yeah, yeah, you should see the emails again anyway. And uh, so anyway, so this is a um, teaching program, if you would. And uh, like I already said, a little bit discombobulated as far as what we're going to be doing on today's episode of fighting for the faith. So uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we just kind of get to what it is that we're going to be doing? So uh, we're going to begin with a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate twin, three, at least a a twin spin, uh, maybe three. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm deciding whether or not I want John Kilpatrick in the apostle category. But anyway, so we're going to begin by heading over to the... uh, Fire and glory outpouring. Yeah, this is um, kind of like mini Brownsville, mini Toronto out there in uh, San Diego. 
put on by Jeremy and Miranda Nelson. We're going to be listening to Miranda Nelson as uh, she just totally gets schnookered, schnockered, bonkers, you know, loses her mind, three sheets to the wind in the spirit kind of thingy, and begins singing in the spirit. It's uh, quite <clears throat> kind of creepy and fascinating. Uh, then we're going to check in with uh, Havila Cunnington, who we didn't get to yesterday, about uh, this important doctrine of not being intimidated. Then somewhere in there we might have to take a break, but uh, maybe not before the first break. But uh, we're going to listen to John Kilpatrick. Yeah, John Kilpatrick. Again, we're going back a wee bit into uh, you know to the uh, Brownsville revival where um, Dr. Michael Brown was uh, one of the uh, leaders, and we're going to listen to uh, John Kilpatrick basically say that um, if you oppose him. Yeah, God might kill you. Yeah, sounds so like Jesus, doesn't it? And uh, and then uh, to round off hour number one, we'll do a vision casting leader update as we listen to uh, Joe Boyd from Aviator Church. I don't know what he's doing. He, this is supposedly a Pentecost sermon, um, uh, and uh, but he's going to be talking about transforming cities, transforming cities, and I have no idea what any of that means. People apparently just can feel like they can do whatever they want to do with any biblical text, regardless of what it actually says or means. And uh, then in hour number two, we're going to uh, end the uh, week off with a good sermon from Phil Johnson. Phil Johnson, as he uh, exegetes for us Galatians 2, verse 20, and the name of his sermon is a trio of paradoxes. So that will be today's episode of Finding for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We got a lot of ground we need to cover. And since we're going to start with a prophetic holy orders, network information exchange syndicate update, let's do this. So I was having this wedding and and we had, we, well, we didn't have, we had Shabbat. Mm, Shabbat Sunday. Yeah, that's right. That's Heidi Baker and Shabba. We we have a rotation of music we use for our prophetic holy orders and network information exchange syndicate. So uh, we're heading over to uh, the fire and glory outpouring. The uh, the uh, microphone has just been handed to. Miranda Nelson and um, her and her husband, you know, basically have been hosting the uh, Holy Spirit now for quite some time. This is night 379 of the fire and glory outpouring. Last time we checked in with them, we heard from uh, uh, Shayon's wife. Uh, Man, was that demonic. And uh, now we're going to listen as Miranda Nelson, you know, just kind of, I don't know what she's about to do here except for to say... Um, if you're a music aficionado, m- my apologies in advance. Here we go. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, just go in. Just go in. I'm stepping into the 
No, this is not one of the reject um, auditions for American Idol. He's removing scales. He's removing scales. He's removing scales from your eyes. I see honey, it's dripping from the tree of life. Honey, it's dripping from the tree of life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that his love my apologies my my sincerest deepest apologies wow okay um okay yeah i gotta clear my head here <laughs> i felt like you know a moth you know uh, you, you, uh, you, a moth when you have like one of the blue bug lights out you know you just Mesmerized by the anyway. Um. So <laughs> okay, okay. Had a hard time pulling out of that. I, I, I was almost hypnotized. Yeah. All right. <sighs> okay. Collect myself. Collect myself. You breathe in. Breathe out. <sighs> Cleansing breath. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's uh, head over to Bethel Church and uh, check in with uh, Havila Cunnington. It's, uh, she explains to us um, how, um, how, how not to be intimidated. Okay, here we go. You know, it's so exciting to be in environments like this. I, I grew up. I'm a church kid. I love church. I grew up in church. I, I love worship. I love messages. I love seeing historic people lead us. Or we, you know, they're the music we're listening to on our iPods. They're the ones we're listening to on our, uh, you know, uh, on our CD players or our tape players, some of you. Um, you know, we're seeing people preach and we can get so excited. It's like, oh, I, I've heard her sing No Longer Slay. Oh my gosh, I'm live hearing her. Or we can hear, you know, all the- Yeah, talking about Jesus culture. Yeah. Yeah, they spew the false theology of Bethel. Sudden, you know, Jen's up here and she's worshiping. You're like, wow, that's Jen or, or whoever. Amanda's here. You know, she's the one that made me brave. That girl. Like, I've been brave ever since she made me brave, you know? And so we can have all these moments and, you know, and we all, you know, I want to be as free as Stephanie. You know, I want to be able to get up on stage and, like, dance like Stephanie or, you know, whoever it is. And the the tricky part in this, listen, listen, is that we can go from inspired to intimidated like that. And so what inspired... Right, yeah. You you don't want to go from inspired to intimidated. Yeah, like, you know, like that. I mean, 
I mean, Jesus talks about this, you know, the the importance of not going from inspired to intimidated, you know, like 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 that. So, hang on a second here, brace yourself. Let's let's check back in with Miranda. The garden with him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm pretty sure she's hypnotizing the people there. That the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a door, there's a door, there's a door. There's a door, there's a door, there's a door. Yeah, things haven't improved. Let's head back to Bethel. Here's us. We go, oh, I want to do that. I want to be that. I want to I want to follow Christ. I want to The enemy loves to flip inspiration into intimidation. Mm, yeah, right. How did you find this out about the enemy, by the way? I, we're, you know, they're at Bethel. I mean, I know they're kind of experimental. Have they set up like a, you know, like signal ops section where they intercept the uh, the you know the communications of the enemy and and deciphered them in fact oh yeah wow look at this we we decoded this message in on our reverse enigma machine and it says here oh man look at this demonic strategy to flip flip inspiration into intimidation oh wow yeah so there at uh, Bethel apparently they have you know they've been intercepting messages sent from the demonic realm to each other and deciphered them and came up with this yeah to cause us to think that what we are offering is a joke and to cause us to think that i could never hit that note i could never preach like that i could never look as cute as havila I- right yeah you know miranda it didn't seem she never felt intimidated about the fact that she couldn't hit any particular notes there's a door there's a door there's a door it's standing wide open yeah she doesn't sound intimidated at all and she couldn't um yeah carry a note in a bucket you know oh it's standing open in heaven and the garden it's the garden it's the garden of delight. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Nothing delightful in that garden. Wow. But never. That's rude. That's just rude because you guys are laughing. Listen, we can we can have all this excitement and then it flips to what am I bringing? And I want you to understand that it's not just about being intimidated. I want us to understand that the enemy of your soul, the enemy of your destiny. <laughs> the enemy of my destiny. Who <laughs> sounds evil. The enemy of the will of God for your life, your family, for you being a leader in your generation. And I say generation means if you are living and breathing, you are in this generation. And apparently that means you're a leader. There's no followers anymore. They're all just leaders. The enemy would love nothing more than to silence you with a spirit of intimidation. That you would so compare yourself 
And he would so diminish what you bring that it wouldn't just be, oh, I'm a little intimidated, but we would come under a spirit of intimidation that we... A whole spirit of intimidation. No kidding. Wow. Not raise our voices and be who we are called to be. Listen, I could never bring that, but I can bring this. And this is the power by which we've got to get out of this. Listen, there's a whole cultural thing we can talk about, but I'm not going to take us there fully today. But I want us to understand is that in Deuteronomy 31.5, it says, it says, don't be afraid. It says, be strong and courageous. Right, yeah. Because, <laughs> man, this is so ridiculous. And these people are saying, wow, this is the greatest thing ever. Deuteronomy 31. So immediately I got to ask the question, what's the context? Because remember, our three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, and context. So apparently Deuteronomy 31, by the way, it's verse 6, be strong and courageous. See, it says there, right there, be strong and courageous. So you need to resist this demonic strategy. The, I mean, tell you, the, the demons, they got strategies going on all over the place here. And they, they've like intercepted communiques between the demonic, you know, principalities and they were talking about the importance of you know flipping your inspiration into intimidation but oh thank you havala gunnington oh it uh the lord has led her to deuteronomy 31 be strong and courageous so there it is be strong and courageous you too just like the children of israel can resist the devil and not give in to his strategy to Flip your inspiration into intimidation. <sighs> Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 1. Again, context, context, context. Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. It was his birthday. I am no longer able to go out and come in. Then the Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. Then the Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy those nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you. You shall do to them according to the whole commandment I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is Yahweh, your God, who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Yeah, so the be strong and courageous is not God saying you got to resist the devil's strategy to, you know, flip your uh, inspiration into intimidation. It's, yeah, it, Oh, man. And uh, you'll note here, and uh, we'll continue to beat on this drum, although it causes some to go into apoplactic shock, uh, Havilah Cunnington is forbidden by God's word to actually be preaching. Yeah. Hang on a second here. It's the garden, it's the garden, it's the garden of delight. It's his 
present, oh his present, it's his throne, it's his throne, oh rainbows and gardens and honey and water, eyes, 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 eyes. Eyes, 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 eyes. Let me pull myself together. Let's head back to Bethel. Don't be afraid. And when you break that down in the the message amplified, it says, don't be intimidated. And this is what the lead. (laughs) And when you break that down in the message amplified, oh man. This could not be more backwards. Right, I'm going to really get at the real meaning of Scripture through the message. <laughs> the world has gone crazy. I was saying to Joshua, as Joshua's going to take the whole you know, nation into the promised land, the word that he gave Joshua as he looked at him and as the Spirit of God would want to do with each one of you today, I can imagine him looking at him in the eye like a warrior, like a leader who's not going to go into the promised land with him. So you're just imagining. Yeah. So this isn't, this is not exegesis. This is imagination. You just cannot make this stuff up anymore. We continue. But he looks him in the eye and he says, listen, don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. And intimidation is a funny thing. And we can flip from inspiration to intimidation. I remember after I had had my four. <laughs> this, this historical narrative is not you. This is not about you receiving revelation from Jesus about being courageous while taking. Ah! I got inspired that I was going to get in shape. And I thought, you know what? Four boys in five years. I've been hanging out for a while. I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to work out. It's going to be great. And so I was kind of watching things online and posting a lot of pictures on Pinterest and, you know, all that stuff. She was inspired. She was posting stuff on Pinterest. Hang on, let's try this again. Oh, take us in. Oh, take us in, God. Oh, everyone. Oh, take us in. Oh, everyone. There's not a single one standing outside. We're going. Clearly torturing myself and you coming along for the ride too. <sighs> inspired. And so one of my girlfriends said to me, Hey, do you want to go to the gym with me? 
And I thought, yeah, I'll go to the gym. That'll be great. You know, I'll go with somebody. They say you have like an 80% chance of working out more when you're with somebody versus not with somebody. And so I got all excited and I'm, I knew, I knew it was coming. It was like, Hey, next Thursday we'll go work out. And so I'm getting excited. I'm like, yeah, I'll work out. Absolutely. I work out. Absolutely. In my head. Absolutely. And, um, I've run marathons and, uh, so I, right. Cause this passage from Deuteronomy, it's all about this, right? I'm getting, I'm kind of thinking, yeah, it's coming. It's coming on Thursday. And then, uh, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm like 30 pounds different than I was when I worked out last. And not only that, like I have had bed rest for 10 weeks on each baby. And not only that, like I'm getting old, you know what I mean? Like I'm getting older. So whatever was happening is not happening anymore. And so I, I, I remember going to the store and I, I remember going to my house and putting on my workout pants and I remember thinking, I don't know whose body that is, but that is demonic. Like whatever's happening there. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I'm having this, like something's happening. So I had this thought, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put spanks on under my workout clothes. And yeah, that'll solve everything. I will just look firm. I may not be firm, but I will look firm and I will look ready to go to the gym and so I remember Thursday coming and I had this plan. I thought, I'll just throw these, these pants on. They're like stretch pants underneath my workout pants. It'll be fine. It'll be great. So I remember putting on my clothes and when I went to the gym, the, the girl says to me, you know, let's just do the ellipticals. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. Absolutely. And I, I'm feeling pretty good about my life at this point, partly because I can't breathe and I'm hallucinating, but partly <laughs> because I'm thinking, you know, I can do this. Well, what I, ha- I didn't put into the equation was that the heat in my body would be intensified by a thousand. And so we began to walk. And as she's walking, I can feel sweat dripping from here to here, you know, like just all the way down, you know, and it's just getting, it's coming in and I have pictures. No. So it's, it's getting grosser and she's talking to me and I look like I'm really working out. I'm like, this is no big deal, but I am like hyperventilating hot. I remember getting home and just trying to peel the clothes off and going, that was the worst idea ever I've ever had. So note to self, write in your notes, don't wear Spanx working out. But you know what? Right, because that's really what this verse and Deuteronomy is all about. She clearly was overcome, you know, in her inspiration by intimidation. Yeah, this is totally the devil, man, knocking her off her game. Look at this. It's funny how in life we can be so inspired to do things. I'm going to work out. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to tell somebody about Jesus. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be a godly woman. I'm going to be a godly man. I'm going to do everything I'm called to do. And then when we go to do something, uh, what can be inspiring can actually slip into intimidation and we can really mess up our lives. And this is what passes for preaching (laughs) at Bethel. Ha! Man, this is a mess. You know what, though? I I think it's time for us to uh, take our first break. If if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. When we come back, we're going to hear from John Kilpatrick and Joe Boyd 
You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> other news, it seems that the inhabitants of Earth are not the only ones subject to economic slumps. Jensen Franklin, through direct revelation from God, has given us information that says that the unemployment rate within God's own army has drastically risen. Take a listen. Angel came and opened the doors and broke the chains. My point to you is simply this. When you don't pray, angels become unemployed. The greatest tragedy A prayerlessness is the unemployment of angels. Because when you pray, God gives angels their their orders. When you pray, the spiritual battle in the heavenlies begins to be armed with the prayers of the saints and people binding. And whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Attention, angels, this is uh, the Holy Spirit. I have an announcement regarding the uh, latest downturn in the economy. And I understand that a lot of you have been unemployed lately due to a lack of prayer. And I wish there was something that I could do about this. But, you know, I feel so powerless when it comes to these kind of things. Um, we, uh, we've uh, created a welfare uh, basket, uh, spiritual relief type of thing. And uh, so those of you who have been hit hard by the latest downturn and are now finding yourselves unemployed, uh, please uh, proceed over to the uh, relief office and uh, we'll see what we can do to help you out. Thank you. All right. All right. Everyone just calm down. Thank you. Now, I know that none of you care to be here, but since we're experiencing a worldwide shortage of prayer, it would behoove you to keep calm and allow us to do our jobs. Gabriel, put your wings down. There's not nearly enough room for that. And Michael, Michael, don't cut in line. I know you're the big cheese around here, but all of us have been affected equally. Wait your turn. Next! What's your name? George. George. Whatever. Where'd you fly in from? South Orange County, California. California? That's frontline enemy territory. 
How many tours you done down in that kill box? About nine. Oh, you're quite the veteran. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's Rick Warren's territory, right? Yeah, he's got most of the people down there praying for purpose, better sex, other useless junk like that. Those idiots don't even realize they don't need God for such things. I hear you on that one. Now, I know it's not much, but this is what I can give you. It's a premium spiritual relief basket. Thank you. I'll be sure to put this to good use. (laughs) I know you will. Next! What's your name, bub? Harold. Okay. Harold, where are you hailing from? Charlotte, North Carolina. Good gravy. You must really be hurting. Everyone knows that Stephen Furtick's neck of the woods is just filled to bursting with heretical slop. Uh, what are they praying for nowadays? It's the strangest thing. They keep praying to the sun, telling it to stand still. I don't get it. Those morons! Don't they know nothing about astrophysics? If they were to stop the sun, they'd burn half the world to a crisp. Moon rocks have higher IQs than those dingbats. All right, got a relief basket for you. I greatly appreciate the help. (laughs) I know, you're welcome. Next! And your name is... Bob. Bob? I swear, angels these days. All right, Bob, lay it on me. Where you from? Vatican City. Vatican City? (laughs) Are those bozos still praying the dead people and inanimate objects? More than ever. You know, that really frosts my cookies. I mean, seriously. Take Mary, for example. That poor woman has been dead for millennia. She's not answering prayers. Who is the dumb schmuck that thought praying to her would do anything in the first place? Humans! They're so darn gullible sometimes. Anyway, here's your relief basket. Sorry. Just getting real tired of that. Happens every time I give someone a basket. Next! Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that so much of 
what passes for preaching today isn't preaching. It's just nonsense. Empty words. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us Say thank you for the work that we're doing, but also to make it possible for those who we have not yet reached to have an opportunity to be reached with the Ministry of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio so that they can be, you know, have their eyes open by sound doctrine, that they can be set free from those who are deceiving them and, you know, and understand the, the, the danger that they're in and find a church where a pastor will actually rightly teach God's word and point them to Christ. That's kind of the idea here. So supporting us it makes it possible for us to keep doing what we're doing, but so that we can reach more people uh, with this vital work that we are doing. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208, and let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, let's reset the table here. Uh, another segment on the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate. So let's do this. Oh, hallelujah. Get up right now. That's right. That's uh, Robert Tilton and Hubaba Kanda. So uh, we're going to head back in time. We're heading back to the Brownsville revival, and I want you to hear to you know from the 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 leader of you know the church there in Brownsville, and that's John Kilpatrick. As um, well, he says some things that just don't sound at all like. Yeah, Jesus, it's the weirdest thing. Yet, the, you know, Michael Brown claims this was a legitimate move of God, and how dare you deny revival was really the thing that was taking place there. I still have not found any evidence at all that would lead me to believe that the Holy Spirit had anything to do with what was going on at Brownsville. Here's John Kilpatrick. It's like out in Colorado and places like that California when a forest fire is coming. A lot of times they set other fires. They set them on purpose to starve this of fuel when it gets there. What I was doing last Sunday 
is I did not discuss an issue. I did not use this pulpit as a bully pulpit, but I used it to request prayer and to give everybody a heads up that there was a serious issue at hand. That's my business. And I'm going to do that when I see the need. And those of you that's not used to that, you're not used to being under my ministry at Brownsville, you either get used to it or you find the door. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. So that's how he does things. If, you, if you're not used to that, then don't let that door hit you on the behind as you're marching out. Yeah, that sounds just like Jesus. Because here's the way I believe. When I'm behind this pulpit as the pastor, I'm going to do what I feel like is right before God. And if you don't like it, that door swings both ways right yonder. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. And you wonder why this thing fizzled, you know? So I am a man that anybody can get along with. I'll get along with anybody. I'll bend over backwards. I'm usually mild-mannered. And I'm good-natured. I like to have fun. But when it comes to serious issues, don't push me. Because I will withstand you to the last drop of blood. Wow. (laughs) Them is fighting words. Uh, That's just the way I run a church. I don't mean to sound mean, but I'm letting you know that that's the way I do it. And if you like it, that's wonderful. And if you don't, that's wonderful. So many people come here to this church and they'll say, Oh, Brother Kilpatrick, I just feel so safe here. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, Well, you do right now, but if I ever have to touch you, you won't feel safe. You're going to feel mad. And a lot of people feel safe here, and I want them to feel safe. But I try not to be discriminating in what issues I deal with and what issues I let go. And... um, The thing that's the most important to me, I remember years ago the Lord dealt with my heart and he said, son, you're not just a preacher of the gospel. A minister, a pastor is not just a preacher of the gospel, but a pastor is a custodian of the presence of the Lord. Where in the Bible does it say that a pastor is a custodian of the presence of the Lord? You understand that? A pastor is a custodian of the presence of the Lord. Years ago, I was pastoring a church, I won't say where. And um, I was 24. I had been at the church less than a month. I was sitting in my office on a Saturday. Had my feet propped up on my desk, leaning back in my chair. And I was studying and praying, getting ready for my services on Sunday. And I was getting both of my sermons on Saturday. It was about probably, it was sometime in the afternoon. I was there by myself. I heard a key come in the door of the glass door coming down the hallway outside my office. And uh, my door was open in my office and I looked and two girls was walking down the hall. And um, I didn't see them until they passed. But when they passed, they both had on hot pants. And there was more hanging out than there was hanging in. And I stepped out in the hallway and I said, hey, where are you going? And they said, oh, hey, Brother Kilpatrick. We're going in here to practice for church tomorrow on the instruments. I said, not dressed like that, you're not. And they said, 
who's going to stop us? I said, me. And they said, um, well, my daddy won't like that. I said, well, you're married. What does your husband say? And they said, um, you'll be hearing from my daddy. And they turned around and wheeled around and walked out. So daddy called in a few minutes. And daddy said on the telephone, preacher. (laughs) It wasn't Brother Kilpatrick or nothing. It was preacher. I understand my daughter was over there a while ago and you wouldn't let her go in the sanctuary. And I said, that's right. How come? Because I feel like I'm a protector of the presence of the Lord here. And I felt like that would be grievous to his presence for them to walk in that sanctuary dressed the way they were dressed. Who put you in charge? And I said, I have a mandate from the people of this church and a vote from this church. But higher than that, I have a mandate from the Lord. And I said, I feel I'm a protector of the sanctuary. And I said, I know this is grievous to bear, but they're not going to come in there dressed like that. He said, well, preacher, I've got one thing to say to you. He said, I was here before you got here and I'll be here long after you're gone. And I said, the last man that told me that is dead. Yeah, yeah. Don't you dare push on John Kilpatrick. No, 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 no. I mean, he's a protector, defender, and facilitator of the presence of God. And if you oppose him, well, the last fellow that did that is dead. Yeah, you know, well, touch not God's anointed. Don't you dare cross John Kilpatrick because God will strike you dead. Yeah, that sounds just like Jesus, yeah. He said, are you threatening to kill me? I said, no. I said, no, I'm not. But I said, the last man that told me that is dead because there's a higher power. And this is not, this is not a matter where I'm going to give. And I won't tell you a, a long story here, but to make, a long, to make matters short... I was there when he was gone. Yeah, see, God killed him. Yeah, see, that's how that goes. You oppose John Kilpatrick, you're dead. Now that's... I mean, this literally turns God into some kind of mafia don. Yeah. So I say here, and you know, you're like not touching, you're like touching my anointed, you know, this, this is not a very good thing for you to be doing. No, 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 you know. The last person that did this, you know, well, you know. Bad things happen, you know? <laughs> uh-huh. I look at things. That's the way I look at things. Yeah. And I usually like to take the pulpit, preach the gospel. I like for everybody to be happy as much as possible. And I like for everything to click along real good, greased up, all the machine returning, all the gears changing. I like that. But I feel like in order for that to happen, sometimes it requires services like last Sunday. And services like this today, for me to not establish myself, because I don't establish myself, God establishes me. Yes, yeah, see, God established him, and you know, if you oppose him, you're opposing God, yeah. But I'm telling you, there's a lot at stake. This is not a normal church. No, no, yeah, see, other churches, I mean, they just do, you know. 
they preach the word and sing some hymns and stuff and have the Lord's Supper and baptize people. That's just ordinary. Yeah, no. Brownsville Assembly, man, they're extraordinary. They're super de super de duper special. Yeah. John Kilpatrick, he's a lot closer to Jesus than any other pastor. Yeah. This is a church here at Brownsville where God has done some powerful things. God didn't come here because of me. Yeah, see, God doesn't go to those other churches. But he went to he went to Brownsville. You see, when you start analyzing statements like this, you realize that's that whole revival, none of it was from God. And God didn't come here because of you. You know why God came here? Tell us. Why did he come there? Yeah. Because he found a safe place for him to come where he can do what he wants to do. Oh, yeah. See, all the other churches, those aren't safe spaces where God can do what he wants to do. But Brownsville, that that was God's safe space. Okay. But I do take it very, 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 very seriously. That I feel as a pastor, I am the custodian of the presence of the Lord. Uh-huh. So, yeah, he's a custodian of the presence of the Lord. And if you push back on him, you oppose him. There's a couple guys there at Brownsville. You know, they, they're no longer a living because they opposed the man who is the custodian of the presence of the Lord. Uh, yeah, wow. Again, this sounds nothing like Christ. This sounds nothing like the pastors that God establishes in his church. This guy sounds like a mafia don, and he sounds like, well, he's imploring and making reference to the same tactics that the, um, the devil uses and those who are wicked and evil. Wow. Moving along. Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what What I do, do, as long as I do it with a flair. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus-pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flare. Yeah, that's right. So we're uh, going to head over to Aviator Church as we listen to the vision casting leader, Joe Boyd, uh, from week two of his summer concert series. Yeah, that's right. Apparently the sermon is uh, loosely based upon that uh, song, Ring of Fire. Yeah. I fell into a burning ring of fire. And uh, and Joe Boyd in the opening of the sermon is going to say some stuff that just, you know, every time I listen to it, I've listened to this now three times in preparation for today's program, it just leaves me scratching my head going, what? what? Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's about... Uh, apparently God's into the transforming of cities and he's transforming cities through the vision statement of aviator church. Yeah. I don't know how else to explain it. Here's uh, Joe Boyd of aviator church to explain. Woo. 
Welcome to Aviator Church. We are continuing. Our... Yeah, what if you're not an aviator? <laughs> you know, years ago I wanted to be, but I, I never became a pilot, and I'm pretty sure I can't afford to now. Uh, <laughs> I mean, aviation on, on my budget. No, that ain't happening. But anyway, we continue. Series called Summer Concert Series, oh, yeah. and it is amazing, guys, because yeah. we are seeing God literally transform cities right before our eyes. You are. <laughs> are you sure about that? I mean, that's quite the claim. So God is before their eyes there at Aviator Church. Of course, they probably have a bird's eye view of what's going on in the surrounding cities. God is transforming entire cities before their eyes because of their summer concert series. And this is only the second week. <laughs> why, why do I feel like reality is not living up to the hype here? I, you know, I, I call me skeptical. And we know that this is possible because we follow God's vision for our lives and, and we see cities transformed this way. We do it by honoring and building healthy at the speed of smell. That smell, at the speed of smell. That's probably not it. Now, today, I want to talk to you about what happens uh, in the middle of chaos. How many of you know that life can be really chaotic? Yeah. Okay, I, I've been there, done that. I have the T-shirt on that one. Right. We we want to see our cities transform one life at a time, but we're trying to deal with what's right in front of us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We yeah we want to see our cities transform, man. But we. Yeah, there's the chaos in front of us, and it's difficult sometimes, right? Right. To figure out what God's doing, what's happening right now, and what God wants me to do. How many of you would agree? That's that's. That sounds like total chaos. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of difficult sometimes to figure out what's God doing, you know? So let me look around. Hang on. I'm scanning the horizon. So uh, what's God doing? Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, okay. So uh, what is God doing? Not sure what he's doing. Um, but let's see if I can figure this out. Um, I I don't know. What is, what is he doing? What am I looking for? Pretty tough thing to figure out. Yeah. Well, what I've learned is that there are two questions that literally will change your life forever. Two. Wow. Okay. I I, I hope you all are sitting down. Yeah. Because he's going to ask those two questions. And once he does, your life, it's going to change forever. These are powerful questions. In fact, I'm pretty sure questions of this magnitude of power have never been asked before. So um, as a precaution, I would ask that all of the listeners of Fighting for the Faith, that at this moment, I need you to sit down. He's about to ask two questions that are going to change your life forever. And... These are the two questions at the heart of the transformation of cities that is taking place before the very eyes of Aviator Church because of the summer concert series. And this is only week two of their summer concert series. And, and you need to turn to somebody and say two questions. Two questions, yeah. These are the two questions. Okay. The first one is, what is God saying to me? 
Where are you looking for God speaking, by the way? I usually look in the Word of God. What is God saying to me? Okay. And the second question is, yeah, yeah. what is my next step? Right. So what is God saying to me? And what's my next step? Has your life been radically changed? Will it ever be the same? After hearing these two questions. My mind is blown and clearly from this time forward, I expect the entire city of Grand Forks, North Dakota, to be transformed because of the explosive power of these two questions. Those two questions will set you free. Those two questions will radically transform your life. Right, yeah. What is God saying? And what's my next step? With God. Yeah. Uh, today, we sang a song called Ring of Fire, the old Johnny Cash song. How many of you like that? Woo! You, you sang it in church. I fell into a burning ring of fire. And they did a great job. Went down, down, down. Justin did a fantastic job. And the flames went higher. Job. Um, I, I don't know. He might maybe threw in a little Elvis there at the end. Thank you. Thank you very much. But... Um, but you know, the thing is, um, what I know is that God works in mysterious ways. Yeah, I actually know that God works through his written word. Um, he does. Yeah, God's word is living and active. If faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, you know, things like that. Um, there, there are times where you think God's not at work and God is at work. And there are times where you're trying to wrap your mind around what's going on and, and why is all this happening. This all sounds like vagaries to me. And God is working in the middle of that. Okay. Um, in fact, the ring of fire that is referenced in the Bible actually comes to Acts chapter 2. There was a moment where these disciples, the 120 disciples, yeah. who had just been told by God that, that they needed to wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and then when it came, they would get power. Power. And, and they are about to step into this moment. And I- yeah, they're going to get power, and then they're going to step into a moment. This is his Pentecost sermon. too where literally it seems so chaotic and craziness is going on and people are trying to wrap their mind around, like, where is God in the middle of this? Uh, They were? Because God moves in mysterious ways. Let's take a look at what it says. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, and then also in 12. It says, when the day of Pentecost... 1 through 7 and 12? 1 through 7 and 12? (laughs) You do know that Acts 2 is kind of supposed to be read, you know, as a, as a whole piece. You, you know that, right? You know, because it's the day of Pentecost. The Spirit falls. The Apostle Peter stands up and preaches. Right. He delivers the sermon. People are cut to the quick. And they say, brothers, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and and you receive the promised Holy Spirit and the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off whom the Lord God calls to himself. Yeah, you you kind of if you're going to get what's going on on the day of Pentecost, you might want to, you know, read the whole thing. To say, I mean, how many of you like when you tell a joke, do you just tell like the beginning part of the joke? 
and then don't give the punchline. You know, if this this you know what he's about to do is kind of like the the biblical equivalent of saying, "All right, so there was an attorney, there was a a, a Lutheran pastor, and a mayor, and they all walked into a bar, and then the attorney said." Yeah, and you know, you want the rest of this? No, no, no. We're, we we got to talk about the bar right now. I mean, why were they in a bar? You know, what color was the uh, furniture? Did you notice the brass? Yeah, and note that here we got a Lutheran pastor and an attorney and a mayor. I mean, have you considered the significance of those three people? <laughs> That's what he's doing here. Rather than giving us the punchline of the actual story there in Acts 2... We're off into bizarro world, and yet entire cities are being transformed, folks. Entire cities before their eyes are being transformed at the speed of smell because of their summer concert series. And this is only week two. Uh-huh. Came. They were all together in one place. Everybody say one place. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house while they, where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of... You, you think that uh, Johnny Cash's song, Burning Ring of Fire, is about this? Hmm. Okay. Okay. And were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Everybody say, God-fearing. This is going to be very important in just a moment. And said, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. And utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these people who are speaking Galileans? Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Have you ever had a moment where God seemed to be doing something, and and, it, and sometimes God's doing something and it seems like it's good for you, and sometimes God's doing something that seems like it's not so good for you at the moment, but you've asked yourself the question, what does this mean? What What's going on? You you do know <laughs> that the Apostle Peter gets up and answers the question, what does this mean? <laughs> C- clearly, he's not interested in that. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> let me read just a little bit more because, I yeah, again, I'm making the point that this is like telling half of a joke. So, they were all amazed and perplexed. Verse 12, saying to one another, what does this mean? Others mocked and said, well, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. 
Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, and on those I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show you wonders in the heavens above, signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice the salvation theme. So men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And you have made known to me the paths of life. And you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God has raised up, and of this we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So you'll notice here, the answer to the question, what does this mean? It was all about Christ and him crucified for their sins and the proclamation of Christ crucified and risen from the grave. He is the Messiah. He is the son of David who sits on the throne forever and he's ascended already and is currently ruling and reigning and they're calling these people to repent, to be forgiven, to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. That's what's going on. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> Joel Boyd of Aviator Church apparently has kind of missed the memo that that's really what is going on on the day of Pentecost. And he's just using the occasion, you know, where the people there on the day of Pentecost say, hey, what does this mean? To sit there and go, have you ever had those times in your life when you're trying to figure out what God is up to? <laughs> That's not the point of the text. Joe, why aren't you preaching the truth to these people so that they can call on the name of the Lord and be saved? Ah, we continue. 
anybody ever had a question like that for God? I know I have multiple times. And, and to set the picture of what was going on, um, all these people, these God-fearing Jewish people who were from literally all over the world came together in Jerusalem for the purpose of celebrating God. And so these are people who loved God, who pursued God, and wanted to do what God wanted them to do. And, and yet they're in this place where they all have the same purpose, which is to worship God, but they all speak different languages. And, and so what God did was he wanted to do a miracle in this moment that would unify all of his people, regardless of what language, what tribe, or what nation they were from. And so God did this miracle where this fire came down and boom, it was the Holy Spirit. And, and the miracle occurred where these people spoke in their native languages, but God supernaturally made everyone able to have it translated where they would hear people of a different language speaking to them in their language. Yeah, no, actually the gift of tongues is the ability to speak a language you have not studied. They were hearing the wonders of God preached in their own language by a special gift given by the Holy Spirit. And, and so in this moment, what God's done is he's brought all of God's people together. He's unified them. He got them on the same page at the same time, speaking the same language. And there was no confusion. There was clarity. And <laughs> so this is apparently an important message uh, regarding unity in the community. Don't think so. Boom, the church was born. In this moment where the church is unified, where the church is together, where there's no confusion, God can do miraculous things. Uh, yeah. Um, do I need to go on? I think you get the point. Um, yeah, Joe Boyd, as we've demonstrated in the past, and it's been a while since we've <clears throat> reviewed anything of his, um, it's clearly demonstrable that he's not qualified to be a pastor. He has no clue how to handle a biblical text, at least rightly. Wow, what a mess. But of course, entire cities are being transformed before their very eyes during their summer concert series, even though this is just the second sermon in the series. Yeah. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with a good sermon from Phil Johnson. See if you can notice the stark difference between the way he preaches and what you've been hearing. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. 
If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Oi, Captain, we got ourselves a heretic! And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. All right, we're back. Hour number two. Note the stark difference between somebody who knows how to handle a biblical text, a.k.a. Bill Johnson, and the people we've been listening to in hour number one. Big difference. World of difference. The difference between truth and error, light and darkness, if you know what I mean. the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Grace Life Pulpit. It is a sermon delivered by Phil Johnson, friend of mine. Proud to say he's a friend of mine. The name of the sermon is titled A Trio of Paradoxes, and it is an in-depth look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. An amazing text, if you think about it. And I'll let him explain, and I assure you, he's not going to miss the point. (laughs) Yeah, so let me go ahead and back off on the music, and without any further ado, here's Phil Johnson and a trio of paradoxes. Here we go.
Galatians 2.20, that's the text I want to look at. Many of you have this memorized. It is a short but rich verse. One of the first verses I memorized as a new Christian years ago, and it's a text that probably is familiar to you even if you haven't memorized it, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a lot of truth packed into that one simple statement. In fact, we're not going to try to cover it all this morning. But this is a marvelous summary of Paul's whole theology packed into a single verse. It's it's one sentence in the King James Version, three sentences in the English Standard Version, which is what I'm using. And I like the way they've broken that verse into three sentences because each sentence highlights a unique point. So it's a classic three-point outline packed into one verse, and that's the way we're going to deal with it today. Here you have almost every facet of salvation compressed into a wonderfully concise confession of faith, actually, that focuses deliberately on the personal nature of justification and faith and our perfect union with Christ. And the language is almost poetic. I've been crucified, but I live, yet not I, but Christ. I now live my life in the flesh, but by faith. Those are oxymoronic statements. Paul employs the language of oxymoron in this verse. You understand what an oxymoron is, the only kind of moron I like. Oxymoron. It's a figure of speech that uses the language of paradox. It's a play on words, really. It's an expression that appears at first sight to be self-contradictory, words that you wouldn't think go together, but surprisingly, they communicate a truth, like jumbo shrimp or plastic drinking glasses, you know, or seriously funny or educational television. (laughs) And I love oxymorons because they grab your attention and they make you think, you know? Think about this, tight slacks, nothing much, you know, awfully nice. We love to put words together that don't really go together, you know, boneless ribs (laughs) or self-help group or Civil War, or original copies. There's tons of these in English. Do you ever ever think about these things? You know, why do we call them apartments when they're all together? (laughs) And why is a boxing ring square? Our language is full of oxymorons. We love the juxtaposition of words and ideas that don't usually go together because they make the real point stand out maybe more clearly. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's playing with ideas, not just words, but ideas. And in fact, many truths in the Christian life are best expressed in oxymorons, paradoxical language. And in our text, Paul uses a trio of paradoxes to sum up the reality and the fullness of our salvation in Christ. Look at them. He says, I'm crucified yet living. Yet not I, but Christ, and the life I live in the flesh is spiritual, energized by faith. And so I want to look at those three 
paradoxes one at a time and try to unpack some of the truth about our salvation that Paul has condensed into this incredibly rich statement. Notice first, we'll call it the paradox of death, if you want to take these down. Number one, the paradox of death. He begins this statement by saying, he is crucified, yet living. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live. And and if you understand Paul's whole theology, this is a deep paradox, really, because before he was crucified, Paul was actually dead. He says so in Ephesians 2, verse 5, where he says, we were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ. He's speaking there of, of all of us and describing our old life before conversion when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 4.18, he was darkened in his understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in him due to the hardness of his heart. I made that personal to Paul, but he makes it personal to all of us. That's the state of all of us before we are converted. Paul is confessing this. He was dead, but now as one who is crucified with Christ, he is truly alive for the first time. And Paul has borrowed that paradox directly from the teaching of Christ, who said in Matthew 16, 25, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's where this idea comes from. It was Christ's own teaching that you have to die in order to really live. Now, in what sense was Paul crucified with Christ? Do you often hear people quote this passage as if Paul was speaking of some sort of, you know, deeper life, second-level experience that launched him to a higher plane of spiritual living? I've heard speakers use and abuse this passage by applying it to a kind of pietistic idea where where we crucify ourselves, crucify our desires, as if Paul were speaking about some kind of spiritual self-flagellation or, you know, putting himself on the cross every day by self-denial or whatever. But that's not what Paul has in mind at all, and the context makes this clear. Notice verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He's talking about being dead to the law, dead in a legal sense, dead as far as the law is concerned, beyond the reach of the law's threats and condemnations. He's saying that the the law's ultimate penalty has been paid on his behalf so that the law has no more claim against him. As far as the law is concerned, in other words, in the eyes of the law, he is dead. He's legally dead. He's talking here about the doctrine of justification by faith. And he says so explicitly back in verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, but because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But now he's dead to the law. The law has no further claim on him. And in our verse, verse 20, he's simply explaining why he is dead in the eyes of the law. I've been crucified with Christ. Now, again, it goes without saying, I think, that that Paul was not suggesting that he was literally and actually 
placed on a cross alongside Christ. We know that's not the case. He was not crucified with Christ in any literal or historical sense. So what does he mean by this? How was Paul crucified with Christ? And and I think it's significant that he expected the Galatians to understand what he was talking about. I think they'd heard him preach this truth before. But, But he explains precisely what he means at the end of the verse and in verse 21 where he says, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He's saying for me as my substitute. And therefore, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He's saying that the the death of Christ was for him on his behalf. In other words, Jesus' death counted as Paul's death legally. Christ, Paul says, gave himself for me, for me. He died in my place. He stood He stood in for me as my proxy and my substitute before the judgment seat of God, and he took my punishment. And that's what the expression for me means in this context, instead of me. Death is the legal penalty of sin, and Christ died the worst, most horrific kind of death punishment anyone could ever meet out, a sinner's death. He died in such a way for me. And if he did that, then he could have only done it in my place as my substitute and as my representative because Christ was no sinner. He didn't deserve to die that way. And that's exactly what Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In other words, that kind of death by crucifixion or hanging hanging on a tree, it is appropriate for someone who is cursed. And Christ wasn't cursed. He was no sinner. Why did he die this way? Paul says he did it in my place for me. So it's clear that what Paul aims to teach here in Galatians 2.20 is the substitutionary nature of Christ's sacrifice. This is a text about substitutionary atonement. Now, that's a doctrine that's greatly under attack these days, and this is not a text that your mind might first go to to think in defense of the principle of substitutionary atonement. The problem is if you take the idea of substitutionary atonement away, if you explain that doctrine away, this verse doesn't really mean anything meaningful. And you see, legally, if Christ bore the penalty of my sin legally on my behalf, then it is as if I was crucified with him. Because in the eyes of the law, that was my sin being atoned for. That was my death by proxy. That was the portion of divine wrath I deserved. So Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Now, pay attention to the context here. He's explaining what he means In verse 19, when he says, through the law, I died to the law. In other words, legally, or or that's what Paul means by this expression, through the law, legally, in the legal sense, I am as good as dead. And so every truth Paul makes reference to in this passage is rooted and grounded in the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. My participation with Christ, my spiritual union with Christ, my fellowship in his death and resurrection, his role as my representative and my proxy, all of that hinges on the truth of substitutionary atonement. Take away 
substitutionary atonement, and you don't have any of those core doctrines of the gospel. But Christ died as my substitute. That's what Paul is saying. Now, there have been people throughout the history of Christianity who despise the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. This is not this, these recent attacks on that doctrine are, not, are nothing new. It's been the case throughout Christian history, and as a result, lots of people have tried to redefine what Christ's death was all about. Why did he die if it wasn't as our substitute? Some have said he died not as our substitute, but as our example, only to give us an example of self-sacrifice and meekness. And what saves us, therefore, they say, is is not what Christ did for us, but what we do to follow his example. It's inevitable that that becomes works religion. That's what virtually all theological liberals and deists and Socinians and moralists teach. It's works salvation. And that same view has cropped up in several places. Remember the emerging church movement a decade ago, and over the past two decades, lots of people most recently there was uh, a lot of publicity about a famous Christian musician who said, who looked at the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and he said, I don't think that's a glorious truth. I think it's a horrible truth. Well, Scripture agrees with that. It is a stumbling block. It is a, a shock to the human mind, but it is what Scripture teaches. But it's a doctrine that's hated by people who think this makes God look too harsh. He had to demand blood atonement for our sins. How can God be so rigid as to demand a punishment for sin and yet so unwilling to damn people that he would even punish his own son for the sins of other people? Why couldn't God just declare our sins forgiven without demanding any kind of satisfaction or payment? That's the way the thinking goes. And so they say, let's reimagine the atonement as an example of Jesus' love or an example of turning the other cheek. And and so let's just think of it as an example for us to follow. But again, that turns out to be a recipe for salvation by works because it denies the objective efficacy of Christ's death for me. If he was merely an example for me, then it's still up to me to follow that example if, if the atonement is going to mean anything. There have also been people throughout the history of the church who are willing to acknowledge that Christ bore the penalty of sin in a sense, but they insist he didn't do it vicariously. In other words, he didn't really die as anyone's substitute. His death, they say, was merely a public display of how much God hates sin. It's a demonstration of what divine wrath would look like if God demanded a payment for sin. And according to that view, God forgives sinners freely, gratuitously, without demanding any kind of payment or ransom for our sins. And so the cross, according to that view, was it's just a symbolic gesture, not an actual payment for anyone's sins. And again, that destroys the objective efficacy of Christ's death. It also destroys the truth that explains our union with Christ. Now, these things are important for us to understand because there is this upsurge of people today who are inclined to argue against the idea of substitutionary atonement. As I said, a lot of people don't like that doctrine because they just can't stomach the idea that 
God always demands vengeance against sin. They'd rather have a kindly, pliable God who just overlooks sin and says it doesn't really matter. And, uh, you know, let's just forget about any kind of punishment. That's the kind of God most people imagine. So substitutionary atonement is not a doctrine, frankly, that, that is well-suited for this postmodern era in which we live. The idea that a loving God would punish the sins of, of an evil world in the person of his own innocent son is a truth they find distasteful. It seems unrefined and indelicate. It's an offense, just like the Bible says. The cross of Christ is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, but to those who believe, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The offense of the cross is the very thing we celebrate. So don't ever be tempted to back away from it or tone it down or, or soften the idea just because worldly wisdom finds it offensive. Worldly wisdom will always find it offensive. More than a 100 years ago, Alexander McLaren pointed out that when... Would people, and by the way, substitutionary atonement was under attack in the Victorian era as well when McLaren was preaching. And he said, when people lose sight of the substitutionary nature of Christ's atoning work, they soon lose interest in the cross completely. He said this, wherever the full-orbed faith in Christ as our substitute has begun to falter and grow pale, people do not know what to do with Christ's death at all. And they stopped talking about it to a very large extent. And then he added this, unless Christ died as a sacrifice and a substitute for sinners, it's hard to see any meaning in the cross other than a sentimental melodrama. And he's right about that. In fact, what he warned about was exactly what happened among the modernists and theological liberals who were just beginning to be a factor in his day. They ultimately stopped talking about the cross at all. And they came up with a moralistic approach to liberal Christianity, and it ruined all the mainstream denominations in the early part of the 20th century. And frankly, it's the same thing that's happening today with seeker-sensitive Christianity and postmodern Christianity and open theism and, you know, emerging Christianity and all that's left over from that movement and all the other varieties of pseudo-Christianity today that are trying to modify the gospel message in order to make it more palatable for people today. If you are ashamed of the offense of the cross, you will ultimately silence the only truth that can save. And Paul's words in this text reveal the superiority of the doctrine of vicarious atonement, the truth that Christ died as a substitute for sinners. It means that Christ's atoning work is inherently and objectively efficacious. His work on my behalf has already accomplished everything that's necessary for life and salvation. There is no work or ceremony or ritual for for me to perform in order to gain life and salvation. But eternal life is already my present possession, guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Christ, I, through the law, am dead to the law, Paul says, so that I might live unto God. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Jesus himself said, John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. 
He doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. Eternal life, in other words, is my present possession. And and the only guarantee of that truth lies in the fact that he has already fulfilled as my substitute everything that the law of God demands from me. My spiritual union with Christ is what seals the reality of that truth on the personal and practical level. This is the very truth that makes assurance of salvation possible. Notice, by the way, how this text portrays salvation and our union with Christ as a a very personal and individual thing. Notice all the personal pronouns Paul uses in this text. And only when he's talking in a context like this does Paul use first-person pronouns. But he does here. The subjective pronoun I is used four times in this one verse, or five times if you're reading the King James Version. And the objective pronoun me is used three times. That's seven or eight first-person pronouns in one verse, one sentence in some versions. Paul's emphasis here is on the personal and individual aspect of salvation. This is not about some corporate or collective notion of covenant membership or the community of Christianity or or whatever. This is about personal salvation. And some of you, especially the seminary students in our midst, will be aware of a deadly theological trend that is popular right now in academic circles known as the new perspective on Paul. It's a wholesale reinterpretation of Paul's theology that departs to some degree from every historic Protestant distinctive on the doctrine of justification by faith. It's a move instead back to a kind of more sacramental and corporate theology of justification. It tends to diminish or even eliminate the the whole notion of personal justification. According to the new perspective on Paul, when Paul speaks of justification, he's not talking about how an individual can be right before God. That's the claim they make. But rather, he's talking about how Jews and Gentiles can corporately relate to God's covenant. Of course, the most famous proponent of this idea currently is N.T. Wright, who's probably the most influential person who holds this view, and his influence bleeds into evangelical circles, he says this, justification is not so much about soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, as it is about ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. It's not so much about salvation as it is about the church, he says. It's a group thing. It's not an individual thing. It's about how diverse groups of people, Jews and Gentiles in particular, how they relate to the covenant community. It's not about an individual's standing before God. That's the claim he makes. But here, Paul is very clearly dealing with a personal and individual reality. Verse 16, we know that a person, that is a private soul, personally, individually, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And in our text, Paul is still unfolding that same theme of individual justification. And he makes it as personal as possible by declaring his own case. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not once does he say us. The justification he is describing here is a personal and individual reality. 
And this is the paradox of death. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless, I live. Here's the sum of everything that I've been saying, in case I went over somebody's head. Paul is describing a personal faith that looks back to the historical event of Christ's death and resurrection and rests in the knowledge that my union with Christ makes me the beneficiary of his death on the cross and a participant in that historical event so that I'm dead to the law because Christ died in my place. And as we're about to see, I'm alive unto God because I also participate in the spiritual reality of Christ's resurrection. Now, I want you to see that this same idea is a consistent theme that runs through everything the Apostle Paul ever wrote. He continually says that we're, we're dead because Christ died as our substitute, and by our union with him, we participate spiritually in his death. Galatians 6.14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Or Romans 6.2, we're dead to sin. How are we dead to sin? Verses 3 and 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We're buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Not speaking about water baptism, by the way. Now, I normally don't interrupt a uh, Phil Johnson sermon, but in this particular case, I think I need to. Now, it's important to note that Phil Johnson is a Baptist, so he does not believe that God actually works in baptism. So this is part of his overriding hermeneutic. However, I think he's dead wrong here, and exegetically, and also how the church has understood these texts, yeah, um, it's always understood Romans 6 is actually referring to baptism. So, you know, I don't want to quibble with him, but just so you know, I do disagree with him at this point. It doesn't say anything about baptism into water. It's about baptism into Jesus Christ and therefore baptism into his death. This is the same thing Paul describes in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, where he says, For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. It's a spiritual baptism that he's talking about. The Holy Spirit is the baptizer in this case, and he baptizes us into Christ. He immerses us in Christ. It's the same spiritual reality as our union with Christ. And he says, if you are baptized into Christ, united with him spiritually through the agency of the Holy Spirit, then you are baptized into his death, united with him in his crucifixion. And so that's the sense of what Paul is talking about in our text when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Crucified, but not actually and literally dead. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. That's the paradox of death, and it flows right into the next paradox. Notice now, number two, the paradox of resurrection. Paradox of resurrection. I live, he says, yet it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm crucified, yet alive. I'm alive, and yet it's not my life. He's building an amazing string of paradoxes here that cover the range of Christian experience. The paradox of death was all about justification. The point here is that, is that faith lays hold of justification by 
by looking back at the historical event of Christ's death. That's the paradox of death. It's, it's about, again, justification. The paradox of resurrection is about the very principle of eternal life itself. And here you see that faith regenerates and empowers us as we look to the living Christ for life and energy. He is our life. I live, but it's not my own, my life. Christ is the source of my life. Just as his death counts as my death, his resurrection from the dead both seals my justification and gives me life. I'm alive from the dead because my substitute is alive from the dead, and I am united with him by faith. And Paul's saying the very same thing here that he says in Colossians 3, verse 3, that famous verse where he says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's talking again about our our union with Christ. We are united by faith with Christ in such a way that God sees our sin debt paid in full by Christ's death, and we are therefore brought up from the dead with Christ through his resurrection so that death has no more dominion over us. Our life is safely hidden in his care because it's his life too, by union, by our participation with him and his with us. We share the same life. This is the very same thing Paul says again in Romans 6, verses 8 through 11. Now, if we have died with Christ, he says, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So also, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. This is a consistent theme in Paul's teaching. The resurrection of Christ guarantees our life. And since death has no more dominion over him, and because we are spiritually united with him by faith, our life is also hid with Christ in God, and therefore we are secure forever. I don't know how people who believe you could lose your salvation, I don't know what they do with Colossians 3.3. You're dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. That's about as secure as it can get. This is an amazing truth, and Scripture stresses it over and over. In John 14, 19, Jesus said, Because I live, you also will live. And listen to the next verse, John 14, 19. Because I live, you also will live. Now verse 20, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Christ is united with his Father in the Father, We are united with him, you and me and I and you, so our life is literally hidden with Christ in God. By our union with him, we participate in his resurrection life. There's a practical use for this truth. In fact, Paul leaned on this idea to see him through his worst sufferings. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 10. He's describing his life and ministry, and he says this, "'We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies.'" You see the same idea there. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 10, 
Paul says that Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Again, that is the bedrock foundation of our security. In other words, our union with Christ makes us participants not only in his death, but also in his resurrection life. So we're crucified with Christ, nevertheless we live, or more precisely, Christ lives in us. Now, notice another significant thing here in Galatians 2.20. Earlier I showed you how he uses this expression, in Christ, to to signify our union with him, our spiritual union. Here he turns that expression around, and he shows the flip side of that truth. Here it's not just we who are in Christ, but Christ also lives in us. That's how intimate the union is. It's the same thing Jesus said in John 14, 20, which I just read a second ago, I'm in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Think about trying to picture that. You can't do it because you can't put something into something that's itself in that thing. You know what I mean? I don't know what I mean. But but the union is so intimate, you could look at it either way. It's Christ in us and us in him. We're so united that we permeate one another. Listen to Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 3, verses 16 and 17. He prays for them that according to the riches of his glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And in Colossians 1.27, he speaks of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ lives in us, and, and his resurrection life is what energizes and drives our spiritual life. We are participants in his resurrection as well as his death, so that even though in the eyes of the law we're not only crucified with Christ, we're also alive with him. We're crucified with Christ, nevertheless, we live. And in practical terms, this ought to teach us to depend on the indwelling spirit of Christ to empower us. This is a a truth that ought to color how we think of ourselves. It teaches us to look beyond ourselves and to lean on Christ, who is our life. And that's precisely what Paul says in Romans 6. We keep going back to that passage, Romans 6, because in extended form, it says precisely the same thing as Galatians 2.20. It's like Romans 6 could be an extended commentary on Galatians 2.20. Paul summarizes his whole theology here in our verse, but he spells out the same truth in detail in Romans 6. Romans 6, remember, is where Paul says we're buried with Christ into death by that spiritual baptism that unites us with him. Verse 8 is the one that says, now if we have died with Christ... We believe we'll also live with him. Verse 9 of Romans 6 says, Death can have no dominion over him now that he's conquered death and been raised from the dead. And then Paul says this, verse 11, Romans 6, So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Do you consider yourself dead and resurrected? If you're truly united with Christ by faith, you should. That's how you should think of yourself. That is reality. That It's spiritual reality, but it's real. It's more real than anything you can see with your eyes or touch with your hands. This is how God himself 
sees us. And that's how we ought to think of ourselves. King James Version of that text uses the word reckon. It says, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It uses a Greek word logizomai, which is the same word that's translated impute throughout Romans 4, where we're told that God imputes righteousness apart from works. He credits righteousness to our account, in other words. He reckons us righteous. Romans 4, 8 uses the same word when it quotes from Psalm 32 to say that God does not impute sin to believers. He reckons them guilt-free, completely righteous. He imputes to them a righteousness that is not their own, and he doesn't impute their own sins to them. That's how the divine reckoning of justification works. And that's how we ought to think of ourselves. We, we should reckon ourselves dead indeed unto sin, really and truly dead to sin by the, as far as the law is concerned, beyond the reach of the law is condemnation. Therefore, freed by death from the guilt of sin. And we're freed from guilt and condemnation by Christ's death because we're united with him. And in legal terms, we are participants in his death And we should reckon ourselves, therefore, well and truly dead to sin. But it doesn't stop there. We're also alive unto God because we participate in Christ's resurrection as well as his death. So we're alive, but it's not our life. It's the resurrection power of Christ. Listen to Paul's words from Philippians 3. This is where he gives his own testimony and and talks about what he now wishes, now that he's counted all of his previous spiritual advantages as scubalon, dung. Here's what he now wishes for, and this is, should be the longing of every heart that is united with Christ by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So, Christ's death and his resurrection are one package. His death frees us from sin, and his life empowers us for righteousness. And we lay hold of both of them by faith. That's the paradox of resurrection. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I live, but it's not my life. So we've seen the paradox of death, we're crucified but living, The paradox of resurrection, we're living, but it's the life of Christ in us. Now, here's a third paradox. We'll call it the paradox of life. The paradox of life. And this one's a little more subtle when you read the verse in English, but let me show it to you. The life I now live in the flesh, I live in faith. That's the literal rendering of the Greek prepositions. In the flesh and in faith. They're identical parallel expressions in the Greek, and it sets up another paradox. While I am living in the flesh, I'm actually living in faith. And faith, not my flesh, is the driving principle of my life as a believer. I'm driven not by my flesh, but by my faith. It's talking here about spiritual power, not fleshly power. My true life is not contained in this flesh. The life of my flesh, that is the living, breathing, organic life that is visible to the human life, that is not the true life. My flesh is simply a mask that 
conceals the true principle of life that energizes me. I, I live by the faith of the Son of God, or better translated, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now notice, notice this very carefully. He's speaking clearly of the life I now live in the flesh as opposed to my life before conversion, which was really just a kind of walking death, remember, spiritual death, dullness to the things of God. But the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Now, notice also that the object of his faith is personal and objective. It's faith in the Son of God, faith in his person and faith in his work. And I want to show you something. Don't miss this. All three of these paradoxes hinge on faith. The paradox of death teaches us that it is faith that justifies us as it looks back to the historical event of Christ's death. The paradox of resurrection teaches that faith regenerates and empowers me as it looks to the living Christ for daily life and energy. And here we learn from the paradox of life that faith sanctifies as it conforms us to the image of Christ. It's the same faith in all three cases, by the way. It's not three different acts of faith or three different kinds of faith. It's the same faith. The faith that justifies is the same faith that sanctifies. Verse 16 says, we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 20, Paul says, the life we're living in this flesh while we wait for glory, we're supposed to live in the energy and power of our faith in the Son of God. It's the same faith. It's the same object of faith. It's not a different faith, but the object of our faith is always Christ. By the way, the error of deeper life theology and all brands of perfectionism and no lordship doctrine and and most forms of pietism is that all of them make justification and sanctification hinge on different acts of faith. So that you're saved by an act of justifying faith, where you, you know, you look to Christ as Savior to free you from the guilt of sin, but then they teach that you need to reach a higher level or a second stage of the Christian life by a completely different kind of faith and a completely separate act of faith when you finally surrender all or accept Jesus as Lord or die to yourself or have some kind of existential faith crisis where you move to the next level of spirituality, that is not what Scripture teaches. The faith that sanctifies is the same faith that looks to Christ as our substitute and our Savior. And if you don't realize that, you're going to be hamstrung in the process of your sanctification. Christ's lordship, his sanctifying power, and our full surrender of ourselves, all of these are encompassed in the faith that first saves. It it may be mustard seed faith. It will grow deeper and mature more as we are conformed more and more to the image of Christ, but it's the same faith, and it always looks to the same object, Christ. And while it's proper and vital and important to make a clear theological distinction between justification and sanctification. They're not the same thing. It's nevertheless a mistake to imagine that that the faith that sanctifies is a different faith from the faith that justifies. Both justification and sanctification are accomplished only through a living faith that looks to Christ alone. It's not by distinct acts of faith. It's not by different kinds of faith. 
or different objects of faith, but it's one act of living faith that continues and endures. And at the very first moment of faith, we're justified. But that faith perseveres, and that's what brings about our sanctification. That faith, saving faith, is not only the instrument of our justification, it's also the instrument by which the Holy Spirit conforms us to the image of Christ. And that's the very thing Paul is talking about here in this verse. Notice, he's talking about real life in this present world, the life I now live in the flesh. And he says the driving principle of this life is faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the same faith that was born at his conversion on the Damascus Road. That's saving faith he's he's describing there. It's the only faith Paul ever knew. It's the same faith that he nurtured and cultivated and sustained through his life. It's the faith he spoke of at the end of his life when he wrote to Timothy and said, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. It's gospel faith, faith in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. The object of that faith is the same historic event that procured our justification. That's the proper focus of all true faith. He gave himself for me on the cross, which is the greatest manifestation of his love. Greater love has no man than this, that he man lay down his life for his friends. So the cross is the focal point of the faith that empowers a godly life. If you lose sight of the work of Christ for you, you will falter in your attempts to live your life for him. Now, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. If you struggle with besetting sins, if your sanctification seems sluggish or stalled, if you are frustrated in your progress towards Christ-likeness, there is no greater spiritual tonic than to go back to the cross to fill your mind with gospel truth. Remind yourself of what Christ has done on your behalf as the great high priest who offered himself as an atonement for your sins. That will restore the proper focus of your faith and energize you spiritually to live in the power of his resurrection. Go back to that beginning point. It's what Christ was telling the church at Laodicea when he said, you need to return to your first love. Remind yourself that you are dead to sin through the cross, but alive to God through the resurrection. Reckon yourself to be dead indeed unto sin and its power, dead to the claims of the law against you, but alive in the resurrected Christ. And remember that faith unites you to him so that his power and his life flow through you. That will do more than all the counseling sessions in the world to set your spiritual compass straight again. Your sanctification, no less than your justification, is wrought by faith in Christ, not by your own self-effort or fleshly energy. That was Paul's focus, and that's the message of our text. All the Christian life is a walk of faith, because faith is what unites us with Christ. Now, what if you're not a true believer in Christ? What if What relevance does any of this have to you? Can you know with any certainty that he loved you and gave himself for you? And the answer is only if you lay hold of him by faith. Romans 8 verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. True faith is personal faith. That's one of the lessons of this passage. You can't be in spiritual union with Christ 
because of the faith of your parents or, or because of an act of water baptism or because of any other sacrament or work that you might do. You don't unite with Christ by attending a church or even by joining a church, only by faith, personal faith, can you be united with Christ and only the Spirit, the Spirit of God can awaken a dead heart to true faith. But Scripture says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ, and the very fact that you have come under the hearing of the Word of God is a token of His mercy and goodness to you. And the gospel message includes an open invitation, an earnest plea to be reconciled with God. Christ invites all who hear to come to the water of life and drink freely. Revelation twenty-two seventeen: the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Isaiah 55, 1 says the same thing, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then verses 6 and 7 add this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus gave a similar invitation in John 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And in Matthew eleven twenty eight, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavily laden, I will give you rest. Notice in all those things, no one is excluded from that invitation because everyone who is in bondage to sin is heavily laden. So nothing hinders anyone from coming but their own sinful reluctance. That's the only thing that holds us back from Christ, unbelief. So if you're here today without being united to Christ in faith, I urge you to turn to Him in faith. Come to Him. And my prayer for you is that His Word and His tender plea will be the instrument by which He draws you to Himself. And for those who are in Christ, let this passage be a reminder of your high position. When you meditate on it, feed your faith with its truth and make Christ the pattern for your soul. Make Him the motive for your living. Make Him the goal of your whole life and then draw on His power and learn to view it as the energizing principle of your earthly existence. Remember, the the same faith that looks to Christ for salvation is the faith that lays hold of all his work on our behalf. He loved me. He lived for me. He died for me. And he lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father, we are blessed by your grace to us far beyond our ability to show our gratitude. And we confess to our shame that we think too little of what Christ has done to redeem us. Focus our hearts and minds on Him as the true object of our faith. Increase our faith, we pray. Bring us to full maturity and perfect Christ-likeness. And may He truly live in us in a way that all will see and glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
See the difference? Yeah, huge difference. Huge difference. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you. The grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.